<laughs> You're listening to the winnabus.net podcast network. That's it, Marco. I am not going to do a cold open this week. I, you know what? I was going to fight you on this. Uh-huh. But I'm okay with that. What, really? Yeah, you know, it's your show. You do what you want to do. I'm your guest. You're my host. I'll follow your rules. I wasn't prepared for this. I thought you would put up more of a struggle, a resistance. You love the cold opens. Oh, yes, I do. But you know what? I'm feeling big today. I want to be generous. So, let's not do a cold open. Or is this the cold open? Wait a minute. Are you recording this? Wait a minute. No. Hey, you're the one pushing the button, sir. Not me. You know that you... Wait a minute, monkey. I knew it. You know what? You really need new staff. The cats are not really, you know, no. You got to just pay someone to do this. Cats work do not work for free. Chris. I guess we knew that they were duplicitous when we got into this, as get hiring them as interns. <laughs> well, they are adorable, much more than the usual crew we're working with. I guess I'll take one of those beers. Monkey, you did go and get me beer, right? Okay. All oh, right. Hold on. Hold on. Let's be- Bring it here, boy. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, good, kitty. There you go. Why does this taste like catnip? It does seem a little hoppy. Monkey! to Digital Noise. This is episode... Right. I know we're getting up there. We're in the 90s, I think. Against, oh, no, wait. Well, no, we're into like the hundreds. I don't even know. I mix up which show I'm on, to be honest. I'm like, what are we talking about? Is this sports? Is it I, movies? I don't even know how you keep track of <laughs> Well, how I keep track of what show we're on? I, 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 don't, I, just, yeah. I don't know how I keep track of like my day-to-day life stuff. This is episode 141. 141. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's 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 a lot of episodes. That's not counting all the remote viewing episodes we used to do on the old site, which were like went into the hundreds, I believe, as well. And when you consider we're covering about a dozen or more films per episode, that's a <sighs> shitload of movies. This better count for something with St. Peter is all I can say. <laughs> I would think so, sir. Uh, so we have a ton of movies to talk about, as always, and a few TV shows. But first... Let me thank all you subscribers out there and bitterly curse all you non-subscribers. No, no, that's not what I'm doing. But to beg, to plead, to cajole you non-subscribers. If you're listening to the show, it's probably you're one of those people who regularly listens to the show and likes it, gets your recommendations from it. The reason I can afford to do the show, which is definitely the most time-consuming show to do in every way on the site, is because of the subscribers adding money to the coffers to keep this site going. Site costs money to run. My life costs money to run. <laughs> you know, I've crunched the numbers, and the cold opening cost us 72 cents per episode. I know, right? We just cut out the cold open. At least. You're saving 72 cents of the dollar. Right this is there. what I'm saying. The problem is they're all be like, fine, cut the cold open. Be like, no! Instead, take that 72 cents and add a bit more to it but, and and become a subscriber. Have, we'll have better cold opens. <laughs> yeah, well, well, more beer, the better the cold opens. It's open. not getting carried away, but like we'll definitely keep Song and paying for stuff. Numbers, we got more special s- guests. Yeah, well, definitely like having the opportunity to mo- do more neat stuff. Like we're we are literally we a few weeks away from buying a whole slew of new equipment, uh, in, 
including multiple video cameras and sound stuff, and it's going to be mean that lots more content for you guys, lots more cool stuff, maybe even some short films and what have you. So please help out by being a subscriber. Also, it helps out enormously if you click on those links on the page with the images of the movies and TV shows we'd be talking about, because those go to Amazon.com, where we have a partnership with. So anything you buy through those links, and I mean anything, not even just the item that you're clicking on, anything you buy, we get a pretty healthy kickback from. And you know, we say this every week, but I think this week we have a couple that people would actually really want to buy. There's, There's some titles today that, you know, I'm willing to put down money for myself. Honestly, this is a pretty solid week overall. Absolutely. Uh, let's kick it off then with the reviews. Indeed. And the first thing we're reviewing may be the weakest thing that we saw this week. Yeah. Although even then, it's not that bad. It's, it's not bad at all. It's like, you know... We had Gouda and we had just American cheese. This yeah. is American cheese. This is a slice of American cheese that's just fine when you're in the mood for a slice of American cheese. It's Now You See Me Too. I read one critic describing it as like, really, this is the Mission Impossible series if it was based more on the actual television show. Huh. You know, that, <laughs> as opposed to the movies. That's actually a good assessment. Yeah, because these, this, both these films are you get a group of magicians who also have various fighting skills mysteriously that uh, they do with magic and uh and they're told to take down a big evil company and they do it use it, like in a way that is should not be possible in any way shape or form using all sorts of crazy tricks and tech and stuff they're thieves who use magic and report to some secret society but they all do it in the name of good. Yeah, they're Robin Hood thieves. Yeah, they're Robin Hood thieves. Yeah. They're, they're, they're stealing from the 1%. Uh, I have not seen the original. Now, which I find odd because I'm a sucker for heist films, and I always enjoy seeing illusions depicted on film and the behind the scenes of how magic is made. So you would have thought that would have been right up my alley. However, I didn't get around to seeing it. I did come in uh, to see this one, and you know, if you haven't seen the first, you won't be lost, but the, the backstory is kind of convoluted. It's a very busy storyline. Yeah. There's a bunch of characters who we have to kind of uncover their relationships and their motivations. But even so... But you catch on. Yeah, the, the, the complexity of the backstory is really, you know... It's, it's window dressing. It's, it's, it's needlessly It's convoluted. no less sort of like out of nowhere when things happen than anything else in this movie yeah. where it's like, because we said so of yeah. the plot stuff that happens, you know? You're pull like, off the most amazing <laughs> uh, technical, magical trick of all time that should, you know, anybody else would take, you know, a year to prepare, but holy crap, we've got to do this in 24 hours. How are we going to do it? Who knows? But somehow they do, and it's entertaining. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wildly like, implausible. It is fun. definitely one of those, like, and I hate to say this old chestnut, but not, but turn your brain off and go for the ride movies. Yeah. And it's not as good as the first one. I know you haven't seen it, but it's definitely not. But it does have some really great moments in it. And returning a group of magicians, Jesse Eisenberg, Mark Ruffalo. Woody Harrelson and Dave Franco. This time, Amy Adams is being replaced by Lizzie Kaplan, which I think is an equitable trade, personally. Personally. Love Lizzie Kaplan. Uh, and even Michael Caine is back, where you're like, well, and and uh, um, uh, Morgan, Freeman. Morgan Freeman. I think everybody who was available came back. And the, you have Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe the being the, the, new, the new villain. Yeah. yeah. Who has a tie of sorts to old the old villains. Uh, and they do some interesting and 
and rather deft twisting and turning to get to where the actual plot resolution needs to be for the thing that t- all the stuff that ties into what happened in the first movie. Where you're like, huh. Not yeah. sure that makes sense, but I kind of like it anyway. Yeah, by the time I figured it out, I was like, you know, if somebody had told this guy something in the previous film, they probably would not even need this subplot of the second film. But, hey, you know, somewhere along the way, they figured a way to work all those loose threads back in. And, you know, you know like you said, you said it best. Turn off your brain. You're going to have a good time. And it's Just don't wor- think about it. At its much. worst, they don't give Mark Ruffalo enough to do in this one, as opposed to the first one where he is, like, it's just such a nice twist at the end where you're like, oh, he was, like, yeah. the guy the whole time. This one, you're like, okay, he's just, they kind of cut his dick off in the beginning of the film, and then, like, it's left everyone else to work without him. And every time you see him, he's just kind of frustrated and having conversations that are leading nowhere with Morgan Freeman. You know, you're like, okay... I mean, you know, if if the worst thing about the part is I get to shoot for a few weeks with Morgan Freeman and get a paycheck. Yeah, not so bad. It's not anything near the best of his work. But, you you know, everybody here brings their A game. It's just the game isn't very – the game is silly. You're mainly coming to see the big magic tricks, which I – if you look on the site, I actually did an interview with the director, John M. Chu, uh, who was a charming and really great guy. I'm not sure I buy it, bought it when he told me, oh, yeah, we made sure that every magic trick on here was actually possible. I'm like, yeah, I don't think no, that's no, true. This is, this is, I don't think that's true at all. That, that's my only pet peeve. And, and, you know, I'm all for movie magic. You know, but when you present magic on screen and you do it in such a way that it's clear it could not be done live yeah. in front of an audience... I kind of check out a little bit. At some point, I go, I know you're just doing this with CGI and models and trick photography, and that's fine. I would have preferred less uh, huge spectacle and more things that really seem like plausible tricks. I mean, if you go back to, say, The Prestige, one of the best special effects in that movie is literally a guy walking into one door and popping out another. Mm. You know, it's that simple, but it works. Or seeing a Tesla and they actually build some Tesla coils for lightning to hit him. Right. That's all done in camera, and it looks great. This movie doesn't do that. It pays some lip service to magic, but it's very clear that it's movie magic that you're seeing. True. Uh, the disc comes with a commentary with the director, mm-hmm. where I'm sure he's like, I swear, this is real. <laughs> uh, the Art of the Ensemble, a 21-minute piece that looks at the large cast yeah. and just says this is a true ensemble film because there's no one guy who's the main star. And it also surprisingly uh, focuses a lot on the production design and the location shooting and a little bit of the magic stuff. Uh, this is actually kind of EPK material, but slightly better than most. It, it's actually a good little special feature. Uh, there's You Can't Look Away, which is 17 minutes looking at just the spectacle of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Bringing Magic to Life, 16 minutes on the on just more of the philosophical side of magic in general, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Eh. You know. I'll take it. It's a good <laughs> rental. Uh, so let's move on. To something else that's very different. Oh, yes. And definitely one of the ones I really enjoyed this week, despite this not really generally being my type of genre. Absolutely. And that's a love and friendship. Uh, this is actually, despite the title, an adaptation of Jane Austen's uh, pistolary novel, Lady Susan, which is basically, pistolary means written as if it's a series of like letters or articles mm-hmm. or stuff like that, as opposed to straight prose. Uh, it was a, a Jane Austen work that was never published in her lifetime, I mm-hmm. believe. And you, you think, well, they've, they've adapted every Jane no- 
Austin novel there is, how much uh, blood is left in that stone. But they managed <laughs> to squeeze some out. And you know what? The results are really good. This is actually a really good marriage between the source material and a director like Whit Stillman, who's so good at kind of dealing with comedy of manners in somewhat upper-class societies, but also uh, with characters who are kind of struggling to maintain their spot although, within that upper class. Although not previously society. as much period piece, which is why this was kind of a very yeah. accomplished. I mean, he's known for The Last Days of Disco, uh, which was very good, and Metropolitan, which he's most probably well-known for. But he seems perfectly suited for this material, as is Cape uh, Beckinsale, who oh, yeah. is like... A triumph in this thing, was, playing the lead role of Lady Susan, who yeah, is a, like, in the 1790s, way more strong-willed and outspoken than women generally were. I, I, uh, <laughs> like a lot of the Jane Austen material, a lot of this story focuses on women who need to find a mate, who need to find mm-hmm. a husband who can provide them some kind of financial security. And I think one of the reasons why this was not published in Austen's lifetime is Lady Susan is cut from a very different cloth. Mm. She's actually something of a player. Uh, and oh, she's, she's actually scandalous by the you know contemporary times. She's kind of you know. both the hero and the villain yes, of this piece. She's scheming. She's Machiavellian. She is trying to marry off her young daughter to a complete idiot yeah. who is charming but stupid but also fabulously but, wealthy. While and startlingly stupid. <laughs> and extraordinarily stupid. He's actually uh, one of the highlights. Uh, I think Mr. James, he's called. He's really one of the funniest parts of the movie. Mm-hmm. And the movie is very, very funny. It's a very dry sort of British humor, very understated. But I was really pleasantly surprised. And it clocks in at barely 90 minutes. This yeah. is not some, you know, people sitting around for two hours having tea. This is fast, it's funny, you understand the relationships between the characters and what their motives are. I wouldn't even call it all that dry compared to most British like drawing room comedy type stuff. If anything, it's kind of, if you'll excuse the pun, broad. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Like, Kate Beckinsale's Lady Susan is messing with everyone's lives. She's a master con man and manipulator, yet for Victorian standards of like what she wants to accomplish, which is marrying her daughter off, making sure that she that money keeps flowing into their side of the family, and that despite how far she pushes things, which is really far, that her name doesn't get dragged through the mud any more than it has to. Yeah, and that's the thing. She is a widow mm-hmm. uh, with a somewhat scandalous background. Uh, and that, of course, puts limits upon her in this society. And so what else can she do? But in order to advance, she has to use some underhanded methods. Because, I mean, she can't exactly go out and get a job uh, or do anything that's going to kind of keep her living at the standard she's become accustomed to. And I can see why this was not very popular in Austin's time. That was yeah. kind of a... Lady Susan is considered a scandalous character, both uh, within the context of the story, but also as a literary character. A lot of women, uh, and men particularly, probably would not appreciate seeing a woman depicted in this manner. But Whit Stillman brings her uh, a certain kind of modern sensibility, and Kate Beckinsale plays her with this great steely flintiness. And the the one thing that I think I could say, if you're on the fence about this, if you like, if you're not a huge fan of Jane Austen, but you say, like, uh, Oscar Wilde, 
This is a lot closer, I think, to an Oscar Wilde Absolutely. type piece. It's yeah. a lot of it's Lady Susan feels like an Oscar Wilde character. Absolutely. And Whit Stillman, he's even said during uh, one of the special features on this that as a young man, he fell in love with Oscar Wilde before he ever read Jane Austen. So when he read the Austen piece, he connected it to Oscar Wilde. And I think uh, some of the characters have been expanded somewhat from the original source material. And. And he's managed to make it work. Uh, really, this is really good. And I agree. I'm not. Li- I'm like you. I don't normally go crazy for this kind of film, mm-hmm. uh, dudes. It looks like a chick flick. I don't know. I'm nothing against chick flick. It is. It's, it is a chick flick. It's just a it super. Is it is a chick flick. It's just a super smart and funny chick flick that appeals to everyone. Absolutely. You know. Um, I, I yeah. I mean, maybe not for the the teenagers out there who'll yeah. still be bored regardless, but. Like, this is classy, it's funny, it's great watching everyone else's reactions to her, where some are just scandalized by her very oh, existence, her and others are just so utterly amused and entertained yeah. by, by her. I love uh, Chloe Sevigny in here, who plays her best friend in American, who has to be very cautious, because her husband is one of the people who despises Lady uh, Susan. Yeah. and Played by like, Stephen Fry. Yeah, pl- played by Stephen Fry. Bri- I'll, I'll be it briefly. But I, by the end of this film, I was like... I think Chloe Savini's character was actually the protagonist of this film. Like, the only person who can manipulate Lady Susan is her, as comes clear towards the end, where you're like, I think she just manipulated this entire story. Like, she was like, she's not in it all that much, but her conversation, she's the only person Lady Susan seems to kowtow to at all. Well, it's clear, it's the only, I mean, this is sisters doing it for themselves type cinema. Mm -hmm. I mean, these two women are actually completely on the same page they're like yeah we're married to rich fools but you know what that's the cards that we those are the cards we've been dealt this is how we're going to get through life and what else can we do but play the game and they play it really well this is 90 minutes of just breezy witty sophisticated fun with a couple of broad jokes in there to break up uh, the tension. It, it's really good. And I, I was surprised how much I like this. There's only one supplement, which is like a behind-the-scenes piece yeah. for about ten minutes, but, you know, you don't really need a hell of a lot of supplements yeah. on this kind of film. You so go. We'll move on to The Ones Below, which was... Wait, let's just compare everything to cheese. What? How so? Well, you know, if if uh, Now You See Me Too was American cheese... Oh, yeah? I, I think... Uh, this was a rich... It like, was like a, still, st- was a Stilton? Stilton? A Stilton. Yeah, it was a rich Stilton. Stilton. Was a yeah. The one it, was below. A, it was a creamy Stilton, but with some very sour, like, uh, veins in it. Now, speaking of sour veins. The ones below, which oh, is yes. very definition of a British thriller film. Oh, like, of, like you say thriller, you think in the very British sense that we're not talking spy movie thriller. We're talking movie that is, some people are going to call horror, some people are not. Yeah. But, it, like, it's definitely, like, about as British in that attitude as you can get. Almost sort of tending towards the Hitchcockian. It, it, it has a lot of Hitchcock overtones, and it's horror in the way that, say, uh, uh, Tom Stoppard might be considered yeah. horror. It's totally character-based horror. Absolutely, and everything that the, the characters do seems plausible, but also terrifying. Uh, this is a story of a, of a young couple uh, who finally get their downstairs neighbors, the ones below. They live in a very sort of uh, trendy, uh, high-priced condo. They get these two neighbors who come in downstairs. Both of the wives are pregnant. And so they do what any good neighbor does. says, why don't you come over for dinner? So the neighbors from the ones below go upstairs. They have dinner. And a terrible accident occurs that 
just starts an avalanche of horrifying paranoia. Which we can say because it's the plot. I, mean, I, it's I guess so. I was trying to dance around it. They, the, uh, the woman in, in, of, of the two downstairs, she trips over a cat and some shoes and falls down the stairs. And she's they're both both women are pregnant. Yeah. She loses her baby. And there she and her husband, played by David Morrissey from uh, uh, The uh, Walking Dead, who played the governor on The Walking and Dead. He's terrifying. And yeah. Uh, they're like they turn from sort of a chilly friendship to outright hostility yes. instantaneously it, blaming it that what just happened even though clearly it wasn't their fault it's a case on of that. both sides saying oh you know who's who is at fault which right there whenever you have any narrative that has that question at its mm-hmm. heart well whose fault was this yeah you're going to get a lot of tension because there's really no one at fault yeah both parties do something it that was, contributes to it, it but it was even so an accident that not so much could have been prevented if not for carelessness it was just an accident shit happens and yeah, it was one of those Jesus, shit happens, man. <laughs> you know, that sucks. But that was one of those, like, yeah, there was no way of predicting that that was going to play out that way. But it doesn't change the fact that that changes the the relationship between these people. And the upstairs neighbors are our primary character, Kate, played by Clements po- Posey. Poesy, I never know how to Posey. pronounce it when it's got the little, like, uh, like upwards arrow yeah. there. She was the French love interest in one of the Harry Potter films. And now she's all grown up. Yeah, she and her husband, Justin, played by Stephen Campbell Moore, uh, they are kind of like, well, let's, like, not have anything to do with them anymore. I feel terrible, but even so, that was a really assholeish way to deal with all this stuff. Yeah. And the downstairs neighbor's like, well, we're leaving, so whatever. You know, maybe they leave a note saying, maybe we'll be able to forgive you by the time yeah. we get back, which is a really passive-aggressive note. Well, but when they do, in fact, come back, after uh, Kate has had her own child, beautiful little kid, mm-hmm. uh, they are completely changed. They're very supportive and very, like, for, like... Uh, uh, conciliatory. Yeah, and even to the point where the the you know once pregnant mother downstairs neighbor uh, Deborah uh, Findlay plays her decides that I want to I want to help every way I can yeah. and has becomes well, really the unofficial sort of godmother type character. Yeah. Uh, but that's all fine except that Kate starts noticing weird stuff here yes. and there. But here's the thing that makes this work. Everything that she's noted notices could, in fact, be just nothing. Absolutely. Yeah, it could just be like her looking at things it with the mother's fear. Also a manifestation of guilt, mm-hmm. which is a classic Hitchcockian trope. Is this really happening? And if so, did, am I the reason why this is happening? Is it something that I did? Am I being punished yeah. for something that I did? And she becomes gradually more unhinged as this goes along concerning everyone but the audience question as she watches this is, is she indeed, is she becoming unhinged for real from her own paranoid speculation? Or is there really something darker going on here with the downstairs neighbors in relation to her and her child? And that part I'm not going to tell you. No. But no. it certainly makes for an interesting play out of the, the way everything goes. Now, this is definitely, if you walk into this expecting anything near a traditional horror film, you're going yeah, to be disappointed. No. This is completely a character piece. I think maybe it's a little longer than it needs to be. Maybe stretches it out, but not by a huge amount. I, and um, I think some of the characters are depicted from the get-go as being a little bit off, a little bit on edge, and that kind of, I think, uh, upsets the balance. 
it works best for me when I think of this as just two normal sets of couples. I, I think they make one mistake in this, and they play their hand too early. Yeah. Uh, with the audience's perspective, where you're like, okay, so now we know what the truth is. And maybe it would have been better if we didn't have any clue for sure until the end. But even as you start to sense the pieces coming together, mm-hmm. even if it, even if you figure out how this is going to end, the way it's constructed is so effective. It's a very lean, efficient little thriller. And like Chris said, there's no high concept. There's, it's not a gory film. No. It's not a bunch of jump scares. This is a psychological, all-too-real kind of horror uh, of just two modern couples uh, and just questions of... Of parenthood, of childhood, of, of uh, having a family, and what you will do to protect them, and what you'll do if somebody prevents you from having a family of your own. It, it's really creepy and really, really good. Yeah, I, I said Hitchcockian before, but it's really more Polanski-ish. Polanski is pretty much right on the nose, I uh, agree. A good amount of bonus features in here, although none of them are particularly long. There is a uh, piece with the writer-director, Far who talks about his visual strategy and how to how he figured out some of the shots. There's a uh, insp- uh, inspiration for the film script and the history of the production piece. There's a piece on behind the cast and characters. Weirdly, there's a whole piece, a short piece called Car Stunt, breaking down an action sequence that look and analyzes a, a shot that was not included in the film. Yeah. Which is a really strange thing to include as a bonus I, feature. That threw me when I saw that because I thought, did I fall asleep while I was watching this movie <laughs> and forgot this scene? But yeah, it must have been cut. And you know what? For a film that just barely is on the edge of being a little too long, it probably was a smart decision to trim it out. Indeed. Uh, now, one of my favorite movies, in fact... I'm just, I'm going to say this is actually probably my pick of the week is Tenebrae. Oh, we're jumping to that one already. Yeah. Tenebrae is among the greatest Giallo films ever made, although it never got quite the attention that director Dario Argento got with his films like Suspiria or or even uh, Creepers, uh, which I believe is called Phenomena there. Phenomena, yeah. Um, But... That being said, this was hailed when it came out post-Inferno as a major return to the Giallo mm-hmm. genre for the director, who technically Suspiria Inferno aren't really Giallo. I mean, they're supernatural films, for one thing, which make them, by definition, not Giallo. But Tenebrae uh, totally dumps all the supernatural elements. Yeah, it is Tenebrae a is a return to the black-gloved killer, mm-hmm. which is the, the very definition, the very heart and soul it's, of what makes a Giallo film. Every Giallo trope you could imagine is present here, and it's kind of hard to fault Argento, since he kind of helped innovate so many of those oh, things himself. totally. Yeah, uh, and as General, I mean, he is the Hitchcock of Giallo. He yeah. is the guy that everyone else looks to as being the guy. He may not have invented it, but he perfected it. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and this may be his most perfect piece of pure Giallo. And it is well as well a reaction to other Giallo and expectations of being a Giallo director. And even based kind of on a true thing that happened where he had some fans that turned all psycho and started to threaten his life by killing him in ways that he killed other people in his movie yeah. own movies. So here you have Peter Neal, who's an American writer of, of horror novels, who's in Italy to promote his latest book called Tenebrae, which apparently is even more violent than anything yeah. he's ever written before, accompanied by his literary agent and his assistant, 
He's un, un, he doesn't realize, although we do, that his ex-wife Jane has followed him there, although we're not sure why. Uh, and we right off the bat see so, like a pretty horrible killing yeah. of a young woman who's shoplifting with a straight razor. And we're like, okay, what's the connection? Well, apparently he got a letter saying that, like, yes, these books have inspired this guy for to go on this killing spree. Uh, he has to deal with a detective and his female partner who come in as the main investigations. And as it goes along, we see more and more characters who have seem to be really motivated to be possibly the killer, only to one after another get killed themselves. Oh, there's a ton of red <laughs> herrings in here. Uh, there's a lot of suspects. And, of course, Peter Neal, uh, very well played by Tony Franciosa, uh, you know, he feels a little bit guilty that maybe he's inspired a lunatic, but there's also a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say arrogance, but almost like an intellectual curiosity. I've crafted all these great whodunits. Surely I can solve this case. Yes. Uh, so that leads him to start his own informal investigation, which of course puts himself and all of his associates at risk. Now, it's really hard not to see this as kind of Argento's response to some of his critics. Yeah. Because no sooner... Because it was. <laughs> it was. No sooner... and he, But it's the way that he dramatizes it. Uh, the character Peter Neal is not a filmmaker, but as an author, it's very clear that the kind of books he writes are the kind of films that Argento would make. And no sooner does he arrive, the critics start jumping on him like, well, you know... Why, why do you hate women? It's like, what do you mean? I, I don't hate women. It's like, well, your, your books are so misogynistic. You know, there's always women being depicted in highly sexualized ways, and then they're brutally murdered. He's like, no, that's not at all true. I love women. I, I'm, a, I'm a feminist. I support equal rights. I'm a peaceful man. Yet he doesn't even... And yet, all of your films always have that. Yeah. And this is kind of Argento's way of going, okay, I get it. I hear what you're saying. Right. And he doesn't even portray that character saying that as a negative character. No, he's not in at fact all. friends with that character. Absolutely, you She's know, like, what and is like about expresses you? a deep respect for her. Absolutely, but 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 still disagrees, and and still is going to produce the kind of work that he always does. Yeah, which is why I don't think it's. I mean, right off the bat, the film is called Tenebrae, and the novel that he's promoting is called Tenebrae, which mm -hmm. should be your first clue that there's a little bit of a whiff of the metafictional about this story. And what's really fun is to see how Argento takes all these things he's already done, throws them in a blender, finds new ways to do them, and top himself without ever really addressing any of those issues. I don't think, if you're looking for like an apologia for his career, it's not there. It's not there. He's simply yeah. done what any good writer or storyteller does is he's taken these elements that have happened to him and said, okay, that's actually good material for a good mystery and put it all in. Now, a lot of Giallo tend to, you know, sometimes if you're like me, you'll go, that didn't make any sense. By the time you're done with it, it's like, well, that looked cool, but wow, you know, the more you think about it, the less sense it makes. I think Tenebrae, even though there's moments of it that are wildly implausible, it's still it possible. really holds together. Implausible, but not impossible. Not impossible. And it has one of the more creative and fun twist endings Absolutely. that I've seen from a, from one of these. I mean, like, it's a fun, like, wow, okay, that was cool. And it, one of the last big shots in this is one of the most beautiful, in a violent way, shots oh, that, God, that, yeah. that, uh, um, 
the, this director ever, that Dario Argento ever made in there, his there's career. A, there's a like, shot, oh my goodness, the shot of like a... Of, like the white kitchen wall white kitchen become wall. being defaced God. by arterial blood. Yeah, or yeah. like, I was thinking actually... The of huge the, the crane shot. shot. The crane shot, yeah. which is not motivated by anything other than... It looks cool. Yeah. And then the Goblin soundtrack. And there's a yeah. lot of The Goblin soundtrack, there. like, once again, it's not the best Goblin soundtrack, yeah. but it sure is in the top five Goblin it's soundtrack. Damn it's technically not even Goblin. It's like three of the four guys right. in Goblin. They're not billed as Goblin, but it's Goblin like in all but powerful, me. driving, weird sort of disco prog rock I've Goblin thing that works that so well. actually on Spotify all this week. I mean, watching this made me just go, God, I have to listen to that again and again and again. This is a, in case you haven't figured it out, folks, Chris and I really like this movie. Oh, it's so good. I this mean, really I, I still stick to Suspiria being the best film Argento ever made, but this is the best of, uh, that I've seen so far, because there's still some I haven't seen. Uh, this is the best of his Giallo. I've been, I had a conversation with a friend recently who's even bigger Argento fan than me, who's like, hmm. Bird with the Crystal Plumage is really his best giallo, and I have not seen that one. I have seen but. that one, but it's been a very long time, and I wouldn't have to watch them back to back. You know, the one thing, the thing that kind of hurt me with Argento was that several years ago, I went to go see one of his films at the theater. Uh, when it was a new film, it wasn't a revival. It was that because it's hard to believe, but he's still out there. He's still making movies, but by all accounts. The recent stuff is not very good. Uh, and so it's kind of amazing to watch this guy. So when somebody goes, I saw such and such movie by this guy, Dario Argento, and it's awful. What's the big deal? It's like, you have to go back to some of this early stuff. I mean, this guy has nothing left. To In his period of being the master director, that yeah. 15 years, 20 years or so, Absolutely. he created one amazing work after another. Yeah. yeah, it's been 20 years since he made a film worth seeing, but nonetheless, yeah, but this is a... must be paid. Yeah, exactly. It's like dissing Hitchcock for family plot. He's like, did you see Psycho? Yeah. You know, did you see all that other stuff I did? Yeah. So what? I made one or two bum movies at the end of my career. I do hope he pulls out another good one, but... If until then, I'll be more than happy to watch Tenebrae. Now, another reason to really recommend this is a. I mean, it's gorgeous looking. They really good. fixed remastered the fuck Synapse out of this did a thing. Great job with um, this. And as well, the sound, which has to be great if you've got a score like this, mm-hmm. is throbbing and perfect and just as loud and as well as digitally remastered as it needs to be. But the number one reason, besides just getting a chance to watch Tenebrae to get this, is a feature length documentary about the history of the Giallo genre, genre that could be a educational thing you would make people watch in school almost yeah, it's so it's really exhaustively thorough of going through where it came from who the first progenitors were why argento was as important as he was to the genre called yellow fever the rise and fall of the giallo 89 minutes totally great you know i, think it's I mean actually like longer than the film itself it's close to it's a feature length documentary yeah, it's worth the price alone of this Absolutely. of this blu-ray and there's also an alternate main titles alternate closing credits that for some reason use kim wilde's take me tonight to finish off the movie yeah, in, yeah. instead of the 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 goblin score not sure why that was even included it was part uh, of the american release and there's some of the english sequence insert shots which were like ones that they did for the english re-release of yeah. it but anytime uh, you see a close up of any of yeah. the letters the books I also have to uh, say that the commentary by um, 
Maitland McDonough, who is also one of the guests on this documentary, mm-hmm. uh, is also a very good uh, uh, commentary. Okay, There's a few dry moments in there, but she is uh, she wrote the biography of Argento and really knows his career inside and out and has done one-on-one interviews with him. So she's a really good... The the whole documentary just gives you a broad taste. There's a lot of focus on Argento, but he's just an element in it. Uh, The commentary, she gets to go and really just focus on Argento and his career, and it's really worth listening to. Right on. Uh, So next up is another horror film that is not as good as Tenebrae, but is pretty entertaining in its own right, and that is The Conjuring 2. Uh, This impossible task to follow up The Conjuring with a movie that's just as good as as the first one was gets a little mired in its own running time. It's its biggest fault. Yeah. You know, that I mean, it's a long movie. 134 minutes. Really? I, yeah. No horror movie should be that long. It's a super long running time for a horror movie. And yeah, it spends way too much time setting up all this stuff based on the famous British case, the Enfield Poltergeist. And and the whole the whole opening, like it the Amityville house, which is just like, oh, remember Amityville? We don't have the rights to do Amityville horror, but we're going to just show you that, you know, these folks were involved with Amityville too, just because I I, I have a feeling that that was put there more than anything as a sign of intent to try and negotiate for that for, to get yeah. the because if the conjuring three ends up being the amityville horror with like a very different take on it you, you know it's got, everybody's gonna go see it no matter how they felt yeah. about this second you know, film I, and this is another example of a sequel that i watched for this show mm-hmm. but never got around to seeing the original oh you you have I've to borrow the, the original really from me the con I'd the first one it. is is a superior horror film yeah. and totally which is good is. because this was way better than i thought it would be oh yeah it's, it really was. Even if you were expecting this to be a major letdown, it's not a major letdown. It's a little letdown, sure. but it's not a major letdown. I, I, my only real complaint about this is, you know, the direction of this is fantastic. The, the cinematography. David, yeah. uh, James Wan does a fantastic job of doing something that not enough filmmakers do today. Not just horror filmmakers, just filmmakers, period. Which is, I know we were complaining about the running time. But there are moments where he allows suspense to build in single long takes. He mm-hmm. lets the act, he lets the scene breathe. He lets the actors kind of do their thing without having to constantly cut to generate a scare. You know, it actually builds up some dread, and that's hard to do. Anybody can make you jump up in your chair, but to make you sit there for like five minutes at a time, dreading what's going to happen next, well, as, that m- takes more effort. As much as a lot of horror scary sequences is about, especially found footage, but which is, this is not, yeah. is about scanning the negative space for what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. This movie is kind of in a narrative way about that, where you're like, there's lots of negative space going on, where it, both in the, the uh, sound design and like just characters who are having the most normal lives possible. This family that lives in this house, a single mom and her 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 trio of daughters. Yeah. Um, Which, by the way, the setting is a huge star. In this yeah, just a, a, like an old tenement house it's, in it's, England. It's the seven. It's nineteen seventy-seven. It is the era of punk. It is the era of the Queen's Jubilee. It is a period of uh, just basically depression and economic ruin that's sort of infamous in English history. So to see that as just the backdrop uh, to a horror story is kind of interesting because these aren't like 
nice people in a big. These aren't yuppies who just bought a big old. This mansion is and working it's class, it's class people. Yeah, in a working class house. That by mom, all means, dad's is not gone, the sort of place you know? that you generally see yeah. being haunted. It's not a gothic setting. It's, yeah. it's a tenement flat. Yeah, you know, there's uh, nothing fancy about this place. Um, and I said three kids. There's actually four kids. Yeah, but the biggest problem is Jan, at the second oldest, has been sleepwalking and having conversations with someone who and then doing both sides of the conversation herself uh and as this goes along it becomes clear that something is trying to take her over in this house yeah i i kept thinking it was lord walter frey who was possessing Uh, i know right it's like it's like hey it's walter frey it's not but it's not even the same actor but But you know that's the idea that she is possessed by as they go along they're like okay this isn't working out i mean even where like they call the cops are like yeah right and then shit starts happening right in front of the cops and they're like you want to call someone else other than us because we don't do this here's the number to my priest he knows a guy (laughs) yeah it's like because we're cops we don't deal with ghosts sorry you're on your own so they end up calling the warrens ed and and lorraine who because before the ghostbusters these were the guys you called yeah they're the 70s (laughs) ghostbusters who are you gonna call <laughs> the wards? Uh, although not in real life, because I strongly suspect they were just oh, crazy. Not, is, not so. Yeah. My only real gripe about this movie is all, especially anyone who takes it, the reality of it yeah, seriously. Like, oh, this is all a true story. It's the most well documented. No. They even bring out some of the people who were involved. Miss Warren herself. These are oh, real yeah. people. Yeah. And they're talking about. <laughs> oh, in one special feature, you have like the young lady who is playing the girl who she's. Not a young lady anymore. No. The, but the woman who was possessed as a child saying, I'm so glad that the truth is out there. And then in the very next scene, you'll see like James Wan, the production designer, going, well, we needed a big scare, so we thought we'd invent this monster. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute. You just said this was true. Well, now, there now is, you're making shit up. I mean, there is decidedly a huge section of this plot that has nothing to do with the Warrens. It's added on to give it a sense of continuity with the first movie, right. which is the fact that Ed and Lorraine are be, have their own demon haunting them yeah. that has followed them there, who's basically Marilyn Manson in a nun's outfit. Yes. Uh, uh, not even basically. Which I hear is, now is, is Kind of literally Marilyn Manson in a nun outfit, <laughs> which now she's getting a, that character's yeah. getting a spinoff as well called the Nun. The Nun, yeah, which know. is not surprising in the slightest. Nothing I think they know exactly. The story. I mean, this is what you do if you own a a feature company. You find as many ways to make more brands out of your brand as and, you can. And you know, it's also complicated because if you think about it, most horror films, the franchises are based on the monsters, on the the villains. Think of your Freddy Kruegers, your Michael Very Myers. True. This Here, is a the rare franchise. Is like a middle-aged, you know, nice couple who go. It's a rare exception that the that the protagonists are actually the yeah. ones who the, the that that this brand is based on. Even though they keep spinning off monster yeah, brands, but seeing Patrick <laughs> Wilson and Vera Farmiga, I mean, they're they're very attractive people. But seeing them on a one sheet in a theater lobby is not going to put butts in the seat. But putting a creepy nun or like uh, the strange uh, skinny man that we see in this film. That'll get people to the no, theater. And that's when you say that, that was one of the moments that the movie kind of stopped dead for me. There's like the oh, movie yeah. is all practical effects until suddenly it decides it's not. You know what's terrifying? If you see the special features, that's not CG. But it's definitely CG tainted. tainted Something though. because they, I they painted the over thing. it. I was like it looks because so it looks good. bad. Why did you? I thought it looked... Yeah, it looks bad in the movie itself. It looks great in the the behind-the-scenes footage. In the the behind-the-scenes footage. So they must have tweaked it. I agree. But the the practical effect that you see in the the behind-the-scenes footage Mm -hmm. is really creepy and weird. But I am totally with you. When I saw that, I thought... 
wow, this they've been really good. I mean, the even practical if effects. At, it hadn't know. been CG. It just doesn't feel like it belongs. It also in doesn't the rest belong. The story. And this was the moment where I said that. Uh, during the documentary where they said, yeah, we just needed to make a new scare. So we yeah. needed another monster. And I'm like, you're talking out of one side of your mouth saying how, oh, we're being true to the real story. And I'm going, we need another monster. It didn't need another monster. They That's did. It. They were doing just fine. And that one, it diffused everything that was happening. It's a cool design. But again, it adds maybe about a total of five to ten minutes of a total running time, and this film did not need more running no, time. No, and I would even argue that even with The Nun, it has one monster too many. It, At 132 minutes, it needed to cut all that slack and just focus on the fucking story of the war. Absolutely. And that's where, if anything, this goes wrong as opposed to the original. Even so, it's a pretty solid horror film. Absolutely. you got Frankie Potente comes on as sort of the, the, the local skeptic character who's like, okay, this is all bullshit. Which there's still, to this day, like people are very split about this case who are like, no, the girls were clearly doing this themselves, to other people going, there's no physical way the girls, I like going, I was there, there's no physical way the girls could have done what I saw. Uh, and, and, I mean, it depends on how you feel about actual ghosts. Yeah. I'm a skeptic, so I go, yeah, the girls probably almost certainly did it. But same time, it's like almost every other ghost story that's lingered this long, you go... But I can't say for sure, because yeah. I wasn't there. Um, Frances O'Connor playing the mom is wonderful, as always, everything she does. Really, really like the performances in this thing. The kids are all great. We'll definitely be seeing more from them and other stuff. A lot of great extra features on this thing. Yeah, what, the little girl who played the, the possessed girl. What's mm-hmm. her name? She uh, was really good in this. Uh, uh, Madison, Madison Wolf. Wolf, yeah. yeah. Between she's, her and Millie Bobby Brown, little British girls now scared the <laughs> shit out of me. Well, the thing is, she's not even, like, by definition, one of those kids that's creepy on her own. She's adorable. Oh, yeah, but, but you know, it's like, yeah. No, yeah suddenly but, you give them a creepy role, I'm like... Is it like some rule now that all creepy kids in movies must be played by little British girls? Yes, it is. Because I'm staying the fuck away from that country. Uh, there is a, a ten minute crafting the Conjuring two, which takes a little, interviews all the cast and crew. Uh, the Enfield Poltergeist, Living the Horror, which we, we talked about before, mm-hmm. is twelve and twelve and a qu- three quarters minutes about the real case, which is you know interviews not only the people working on this film but some of the original people, and is definitely slanted towards yes, it was real. <laughs> uh, there's a created. Crooked, which look at uh, that. In which fact, is a great effect, practical effect, but, ruined by CG. Yeah, uh, there's <laughs> the Conjuring Two, ha- Hollywood's haunted <laughs> stage that uh, apparently it's like I, a shittier the, episode of Ghost Hunters. Yeah, it like. says the set itself was being haunted oh, from former was... crew members from the 20s, which is of course all bullshit. It's a problem, um, but... seven minutes on the sounds of scare where they talk to the composer Joseph Bishara, uh, and it does have a solid score. It does. Uh, a good horror movie can't not. It's so es- essential to good horror. Uh, there's six and a half minutes of deleted scenes and then a couple of introductory trailers for this. But yeah, Conjuring 2, still pretty yeah. solid, despite its flaws, a pretty and a solid entry in the film. series. I mean, anywhere else this would be a low-budget, independent, and yet to see a studio put some real resources behind... A fairly run-of-the-mill horror movie. Yeah. I'd like to see more of that, please. I couldn't agree more. Next up is Dead End Drive-In. This is part of that Ozploitation explo- uh. explosion of films, uh, the Austra- all the Australian stuff in the 80s, some of which is downright kind of awesome. Yeah. And some of it is downright kind of terrible. This is obviously, like, this to me is on the kind of awesome side. It, uh, it, is, uh, it is kind of on the awesome side, but it's got some... 
it does have some structural problems for me. And it's a, a film that if you want to see all the punk films of the 80s, the, yes. like those pop, I, colorful, crazy punk films, this is one that has to be on your list. I, I really thought as a 12-year-old that, you know, the, the future would have a lot more shoulder pads and <laughs> mohawks. I'm yeah. kind of disappointed. Me too. I, I want my cool-ass, you know, ride to go around. This is such a bizarre film because, frankly... It's three or four films all trying to be one, and it doesn't always work. Uh, this is a time in the future. It's a post-apocalyptic society. We're in Australia. It's kind of the first... It kind of feels like it's supposed to be the exact same time the first Mad Max movie yeah, takes place. It's like where society right hasn't there. collapsed completely, There's still but some it's semblance of just on the border of it. Car gangs are running around... Cars have become such a commodity that there's actually, like, gang warfare between, like, these street gangs who come to, like, they're basically ambulance chasers. They go after wrecks and try to strip the cars before the sort of legally sanctioned tow truck drivers can come in. Mm -hmm. Now, this is getting my interest. But no sooner has that plot line been established than we cut away from that and we go into a totally different movie altogether where uh, one of the characters, uh, the lead actor, who's I'm blanking on his name, he's somewhat of a cipher, Krabs, that's yeah. right, the character of Krabs. Jimmy Krabs. His, he's this sort of fitness nut who idolizes his older brother who's one of these tow truck drivers. You know, he loves hot rods and exercise. That's basically his thing. He takes, he borrows his brother's hot car. Which is a really nice car. Nice car. And his even hotter girlfriend. And they go to a drive-in. So far, so good. But then this is where we kind of go into like some weird, absurdist Luis Buñuel mm -hmm. area. Where it's like suddenly, oh no, you can't leave the drive-in. Yeah. You can't. It's like, we just came to see a movie. It's like, no, you got to stay now. We're not letting anybody leave. It's like, what do you mean I can't leave? And it becomes this bizarre sort of allegory for society yeah. where all of these kids have been rounded it's up by the government. It's about an, uh, how ec economics itself is a prison. Mm -hmm. Like, is the, is the not-so-subtle subtext here. Like, your very economic strata that you're in of middle to lower class is a prison. Yeah. And we want to keep you there. And we're going to entertain you. We're going to feed you. We're going to yeah. provide you with all the basics you need to survive. We're going to ship in drugs yeah, and everything to else. keep you complacent and manageable. And, of course, you know... Krabs is the only character who's like, screw this. Yeah, everyone else is out. like, why are you bucking the system? This, yeah, is great. this is great. We get all this free food. We get a movie every night. Yeah. What's the problem? And he's like, no, this is unacceptable. And is plotting his escape the whole time, which he does in really kind of spectacular fashion towards the end with a yeah. really nice car stunt. But you have at to wait for a long period of time to get to that. Yeah. And so you see this sort of ecosystem grow up with inside, you know, this compound that's sealed off. You know, the kids, it, it's, you know, they watch movies every night. They're provided everything by the government. And everything is kind of okay until the government starts shipping in immigrants. These sort of vaguely <laughs> like Asian said, people. Not, not so subtle uh, subtext. Yeah, there's nothing <laughs> subtle about it. The thing is, they don't go anywhere with that either. It's just we see... Because it's not a plot element. It's part of the subtext. I mean, this film is more subtext than its text. And it's very entertaining in that way. Yeah. You have to watch it as this is a commentary film, but that is so goofy and ridiculous that, that it's super fun to watch. Yeah, they ship in all the immigrants. All the white people get really upset and start forming racist groups. I mean, they could make this movie now and it would be super relevant. You know? <laughs> they probably are making this movie now <laughs> 
it's actually not making it. It's just happening. Yeah, um, it's just happening. But like, it's fun. It's got a good soundtrack. It's like, I mean, not we're not talking a masterpiece of cinema. No. It's kind of a masterpiece of cult cinema. Yeah. But it's certainly not anything just for anyone. But I guarantee you're going to have a good time watching it. From Brian Trenchard Smith, who is definitely kind of one of the main figures in Ozploitation film, uh, which is saying almost everything has been direct to video releases. Uh, even doing some stuff later on, like Leprechaun 3. Quentin, Tar- he's, Quentin Tarantino calls him one of his favorite directors, so take that for what it's worth. And this is his favorite of um, all of BMX Bandits films. is actually a really solid uh, Trenchard film if you've never seen that one. So Hospitals Don't Burn Down and Stunt Rock. Well, I mention those because those shorts are actually special features on this disc. Yeah, well, yeah, no, that's one of the neat things about this Arrow release. Arrow kind of becoming one of the new big companies to look to for re-releases of cult and exploitation films. They do such a good job. And here, um, not only do they make this thing just look gorgeous, and they actually did something that a lot of the other companies aren't even bothering with, which I think makes such a difference. They added subtitles. Some of the other companies doing this stuff, they're like, yeah, we're not going to spend the money to do this. What deaf people are going to be watching this trash? I I really love uh, having the subtitle option. They got the director, Brian Trenchard Smith, in to do an audio commentary. Like you said, the entire documentary, The Stuntmen, which was apparently uh, like a big deal to BNAT audiences, but Numathon audiences, but I don't know. I guess they played it one year and everybody loved it. I haven't I mean, seen it. It's not bad. I've, and, I only saw portions And then of his it. short film, Hospitals Don't Burn Down, a public information film, yeah. but told in a very exploitation way. Uh, behind yeah. the scenes gallery by the graffiti artist uh, who is in this film, because there's a lot about graffiti art yeah. in here. Uh, and uh, yeah, Reversible Sleeve with the original and the new artwork. I mean, this is a solid release. It really is. And like I said, I, there, I wanted a little bit more out of this movie, but I do respect what it was trying to do. I don't think it always managed all those tonal shifts, so I think you liked it a little bit more than me, but... Okay. I do respect it for what it's trying to be. All right. This next film is also exploitation, but I was not going to make you visit it, even though the I thing is super short. Uh, thank God. Oh. Uh, My Chance Daily Life, the movie. Now, I if you're like me, you don't know anything about what goes on with anime, really. Oh. Uh, and I had never heard of this, but apparently this is a, uh, well, uh, a manga that is... <sighs> God, it's so hard to even describe what this is about because it makes me nauseous. There's this maid named Mai Chan who's immortal, but for some reason she chooses to work for this guy who's in a wheelchair and his number one maid who's basically a, a, a BSDM DM mistress who regularly chop her up into pieces and torture her because she's just going to regenerate anyway. And she just decides that that is her life. That's what she does. And this particular adaptation of this in live action, which, like I said, blissfully short, thank God, um, brings in a character who's a new maid who gets hired at the house who you're like, oh, she's going to be the protagonist who actually helps her out of the situation, right? No. She decides immediately this super turns her on and she wants to personally be involved in it and start cutting her up, involving a scene where they just piece by piece tear this woman apart and start feeding her her own intestines and at the same time doing stuff where they're like fucking pieces of her body. I mean, like it's lots of panty shots, lots of, I mean, this is fetishy for only the most extreme fetishists and honestly if this is your thing i don't don't tell me i don't want to know yeah in fact maybe do tell me so we can stop being friends because this is fucked up if you're into this now that being said japan has apparently one of the lowest like 
amounts of rapes of any like city in the of its yeah, size and in this the is world. From the country that and, invented rape men, and maybe it's because they they're have entertainment. An like they give them this outlet for the sickest, most demented shit imaginable, like this. But I I don't know. This is uh, okay. So basically, if you don't live in Japan and you love this, don't talk to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm with you. you. You had mentioned this to me earlier. I haven't seen it. I mean, there might be some. From what you said, there's some elements that sound interesting. It's not. But if it goes that far, and it, after it's, a while, th- you know, th- after a while, it's like, look, you're either trying to tell me something, and you're doing a very extreme sort of allegorical or symbolic way of telling me something, or you just get off on this shit. No, it's about just getting off and, on and this. And if that's there's all no, there is, why would I be there's interested? There's nothing in? deeper here. It's even shot on super cheap video in the most amateur uh. style possible. It's it's badly made. It's There's nothing about this to recommend this. I'm sorry. Unless you just want to see something this sick, this demented. Because if that's what you're going for, it's going to give you everything you were hoping for. But I cannot personally recommend it. I felt nauseous. I barely got through the whole... The only thing that kept me through watching the whole thing was that it was so short. I was like, I know it's going to be over soon, so I'll just finish it up. Well, I'm now, glad you took that bullet. On the other side, another thing you didn't get to see, but yeah. is highly recommended by me like it's so good and has no right to be as good as it is really? is the Ryan Murphy television series the first uh, season of American Crime is the anthology series The People versus O.J. Simpson this thing well it just it's been nominated for st- yeah. uh, just a stack of Emmys I think it even I, uh, a, maybe award setting for most Emmys by one one thing I can't remember but it I had no interest because I'm like, man, I lived through this shit. I I I was was sick of it while it was happening. I was tired of it. But this miniseries manages to really ask questions that never occurred to us before. It really makes it where, like, a lot of the stuff that's going on in this is more about what's happening right now with, like, like, I mean, it gets into the whole aspect of, like, you know, police not really trusting what's going on to, with the uh, police and how they're so corrupt. Cause that was a huge part of this case. Oh, yeah. No question, but it reflects well on what's happening now. Look, just don't spoil it, it for me. I don't want to know whether or not OJ did. <laughs> it gets into, um, uh, uh, what's her name? Um, Marsha Clark played, tremendously here by Sarah Paulson. It gets really into the something you didn't hear anything about during the actual case, the degree to the sexual harassment she was dealing with on a daily basis that almost broke her from the media. Just like uh, unbelievable stuff they would not be able to get away with now. But the way they were just harassing her endlessly. I mean, and this like, was pre uh, and, and just even co-workers, like, or, like harassing her in that sort of like uh, mini-aggression aggression sort of way. Uh, Overall, this is really solid, really well directed and written, um, with There's good performances with everyone except for, and once again, not terrible performances, but questionable. Cuba Gooden Jr. is O.J. Simpson. It's like, yeah, he's definitely putting on a lot of affectations and playing a character, but then you're like, I know what O.J. Simpson sounds like, and, that, and yes, that's, like, and that's not role. it. That's a thankless I, I don't role. know who you're playing, but it doesn't feel like it's O.J. Simpson. That's one of those thankless roles in that, you know, you not only have a character who is sort of infamous, but even before he was infamous, he was a famous, well-known character. Yeah. You know, this is a real human being, obviously not a character, but yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, you're already dealing with an actor playing another actor. And 
you know, obviously Cuba Gooding Jr. and O.J. Simpson don't look anything alike. But can you think of anybody who looks and sounds like O.J. Simpson? Yeah. You know, he it was going to be a thankless role no matter who got it. Yeah, very, very true. Um, but as well, John Travolta playing Robert Shapiro, who was the initial main lawyer for O.J., is overacting like crazy here and Wait, John Travolta over I know he's just out of place in this thing and they gave him too much makeup he just looks silly like I, I don't watch Travolta movies for the hairpiece which that being said Courtney B. Vance playing Johnny Cochran he's not overacting he's just if he was playing some other character he'd be overacting yeah. he's playing Johnny it's hard Cochran to, it's hard to overact Johnny Cochran <laughs> and he nails it like I said the strongest point here is him and uh, um, uh, Sarah Paulson as Marsha Clark they are tremendous here but there's lots of good performances all throughout this Nathan Lane as F. Lee Bailey is really good uh, David Schwimmer is surprisingly good as Robert Kardashian even though it feels like they play him God almost even oh. overly sympathetically he's kind of like this nice naive kid in the woods character who's like but oj's my best friend there's no way he would do this who's just supports his friend blindly but in a way he's kind of an audience avatar of like slowly grudging realization that this guy we all grew up loving actually did this you know i can't even revisit the past without having to deal with a goddamn kardashian (laughs) yeah which they do make a point of showing the kids more than they need Uh. to uh kenneth Choi does a great job as judge lanzito my god he looks exactly like him uh sterling k brown as christopher darden is is one of the another one i should throw in is one of the top performances here this is great stuff and is well worth watching it's so you can't put it down type of thing Uh, i I think you sold me on this one Strongly, strongly. Otherwise, recommend. I would have run from the hills just seeing anything like the fact that it has ten episodes gives me pause. I mean, well, it's a miniseries. It's yeah. a miniseries, yeah. and that's probably for the best because it gives you a chance to really kind of delve into that material. Um, but I'm like you; it was just like I lived through that. I, I didn't want to go back. I was yeah. so glad for it to die down. Um, uh, there's just a few extras. There's 30 minutes of Past Imperfect, The Trial of the Century, which is a promotional piece, purely. Sure. And then there is a Facts of the Case, an interactive timeline, which kind of just gives you all the evidence and a few playable video clips and whatever. Not as much as you'd expect, quite frankly. Yeah. I would have liked a nice go through all the actors and interview each one about their take on it because there's such a big fucking cast to this thing. I mean, I didn't even come close to mentioning everybody who you're going to see in this. But, uh, yeah, totally solid. Uh, I, the next one I want to talk about, we I, I totally forgot to put on my list, but it's the Iron Giant re-release. Oh, uh, yes. Holy shit. I'm so... Making abs- its debut on Blu-ray. I'm t- so absolutely thrilled this finally came out on Blu-ray and really ashamed that it took this long. Uh, I mean, I can make this review real short. It's the Iron Giant. Just go get this movie. It, You're going to love it. It's the Iron Giant. It's one of the greatest animated films ever made. Uh, it's definitely one of the best for anyone who ever had has things like I do about nobility and Superman and things like that. It's... Just and famously a huge bomb on its release, which is weird to me because I remember seeing the Iron Giant in its initial release. Yeah, me too. And it never occurred to me that it was a flop. It was only later that I kind of got the sense that, oh wow, you know, this film seems to have underperformed. And it turns out that pretty much everybody who saw it loved it. But it was, you know, famously it had a very uh, rough uh, period of development. It was thrown into the marketplace, not terribly well marketed. 
people didn't know what to do with it, there was no time to publicize it, and so it died a quick, quiet death at the box office, but yeah. thanks to home video, uh, it managed to regain its audience and is now recognized as an American classic of animation. Now, if you already own The Iron Giant on DVD... Mm -hmm. You might ask yourself, well, why should I need to get this? Well, one, obviously, it's on Blu-ray. And looks and sounds that much better. And, you know, this is what's being referred to as the signature edition. Uh, there are approximately three new scenes, and I use those words very loosely, mm -hmm. because it's really like two very, very, very bit brief bits of footage that have been incorporated, plus one extra shot that's really just a replacement of an image on a TV screen. True. There's really... If you haven't seen Iron Giant in a while and you watch this new version, you're not going to necessarily notice anything. Nothing's going to jump out at you. No, but that's not what you're getting it for, per se. No. Per se. You're getting it for, well, one, I mean, like I said, the best quality copy you can get, yeah. and two, the brand new bonus features, one of which is great. A 55-minute yeah. The Giant's Dream, a documentary that is, like... It's primarily kind of a biography it's of Brad, the Brad Bird. Bird story. I mean, which who needs one and has a solid, super interesting background yeah. story. And now that almost twenty years have gone by, yeah. they can they don't necessarily name names, but you know they can talk a little bit more honestly mm -hmm. uh, than some of the earlier puff pieces, and they can just be frankly brutal about like, look, and, this was a horrible production. It was hard. People weren't getting along. You know, the studio was fighting with us. You yeah, know, and then it was a, just a nightmare getting it released. Well, it seems so like the only people great. who weren't getting along were Brad Bird and, and the woman producer. who was the producer, who was the li liaison, uh, Allison Abate, to the to Oops. the uh, studio. Yeah. They could not stand each other because it kept they kept reducing the money. And this is the point where the studio, uh, I believe, it was Warner Brothers, yeah, had just put out like a major animated bomb West and had decided, fuck it, we're not going to have an right. animated department after all. And yet this thing was still going on and they're going day to day waiting for the guys, the, the goons to, to show up date. in the studio and, and say, get out, we're one burning that, everything. One thing that Brad Bird doesn't necessarily take responsibility directly for, he does mention it, but... You know, at some point, like you were mentioning, you know, they had this huge bomb on their hand, and now Iron Giant was coming along. And frankly, they didn't want to commit to a release date. They didn't want to put any more money into this project. And finally, when they, the tests started coming back and the audiences loved it, they said, yes, okay, we will release this. People really liked it. It was like the best test. They were shocked that in people like 15 loved years, this. years, the best reviews they'd gotten. For any film. But, and here's where Brad Bird kind of shares a bit of the responsibility, is they, you know, they tell him, all right, we think we need like six months to a year. We're going to market the hell out. He's like, no, no, no. I want you to release it right away. Because, you know, he's assuming that within a few months, any day now, they're going to pull the plug. Yeah. So he'd rather it get released bolstered by, you know, the, all the great reviews from the uh, the early test screening. He, so he kind of for, plays, forces their hand to release it early, and nobody knows the movie's coming out. The trailers were horrible. Yeah, there, there was, was like, no a, there's a whole story about, it. like, how it went to a theater, and there was, sure, there was an Iron Giant stand-up that was hidden in the very back area of the theater, not even next to the entrance for the movie itself, and one of the arms was torn yeah. off of it. We were like, yeah, and that was really how they promoted it, which is to say they didn't at all. No. And so, of course it died. Anyway, we gotta move yeah, on. we but, have to but move on. This is, this is the other new movie. thing is there's a commentary with Brad Bird, head of animation, uh, Tony Fusil, story department head, Jeff 
Jeff Lynch and animation supervised and Steve Markowski, and then all the previous uh, extras Everything from the previous 2003 releases. and 1999's yeah. release of and, this and stuff. And one thing that I think needs to be said before we move on, uh, because one of my pet peeves is when I get these sort of so-called director's cuts... Yes, this is Brad Bird's preferred cut with these three little new bits that basically add up to less than a minute and a half worth of new footage. But the best thing is, the original cut is still there. Yeah. The new stuff doesn't really add much. It doesn't detract either. And you don't have to, like, you know, worry about keeping your old copy just to preserve the theatrical cut. You get both, and both cuts are beautifully restored and presented. So it is a win-win all the way. Mm. This is a great blue All the way. Oh, oh. See, see all the I way. See what I did, which there, is our next film, All the Way. Uh, uh, there you go. This is HBO's film department, which lately has been knocking it out of the park yeah. with one after another. Uh, this one is based on the beginning of the presidency of Lyndon B. Johnson, which you may go, "Why do I care about that?" Well. Like, maybe you don't know, Johnson was the president who became president after Kennedy was assassinated, who walked right into the middle of a shitstorm yeah. mul- on multiple different Civil levels. Civil rights movement, yeah. Vietnam yeah. War. And decided that he was going to... At this point, the Democrats, the Dixiecrats were a big Dixie thing. Crats. And they were kind of Democrats from the South, who at that point kind of controlled the South, the Democratic Absolutely ticket. And were like, no, one thing you're not going to move us on is this whole civil rights thing. And he decided that the only way he was going to like, the, like, leave a legacy he wanted to the right thing was to continue what JFK started and beyond... What, like and break up the Democratic Party to make he, sure he this thing got passed. Lost the the Democratic Party lost the South for decades. because of this. Yeah, because of this. Yeah, and here and then they all became Republicans. And here, I'm sorry, I don't yeah. mean to be like overly political, but, but yeah, true. Um, yeah. Here, this is directed by Jay Roach and Brian Cranston. Masterfully plays the completely cantac- cantankerous, foul mouthed but yeah. lovable LBJ, oh, yeah. who was like just such a. a fascinating guy and so he's much an, fun to watch he is an enormous ball of contradictions yeah that historically and i've seen other actors portray this character and this really is one of the best ones now uh, sadly they him. don't give melissa leo anywhere near enough to do no, as lady bird she, i, I do recognize her is a fascinating character in her own right Absolutely. but she's not given a lot to do here in the story other than be the one that occasionally has to has to like when when LBJ gets into one of his deeply insecure yeah. moments to to boost him up again and yeah. say no go back to being the 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 crazy blowhard that we all love and then Anthony Mackie as Martin Luther King Jr. as well not yeah, given not as much to do as much. here as as he should uh, he's treated he's given prominent presence as though he were like the co-lead but yeah, make no but mistake he's not. this is the this is Brian Cranston's show all the way oh 110% however what it does do really well even in the depiction of Martin Luther King, and again, Anthony Mackie knocks it out of the park. If, if all you think he is is that dude who played the Falcon in the Avengers movie, uh, this is an actor with a lot more depth to him. He obviously has a quite a big deal of range, Absolutely. a great deal of range. Um, and you see these two master politicians in LBJ and Martin Luther King who, you know, are, for all their idealism, they do have a sort of flinty, strong-willed political sense that knows when they have to fight, knows when they have to compromise. And even though both men work in wildly different ways, 
they do have their own approaches to solving and convincing people. Um, um, this is fantastic. Also work. got Bradley Whitford pl- with oh, a yeah. hairpiece playing Hubert Humphrey. Stephen Steve- Root as yes, yeah, Jagger Hoover. Um, this is a, a really solid, really Frank Langella. I can't forget playing Richard Russell Jr., which was who was the guy who was kind of the mentor for LBJ, yeah. uh, like a Republican mentor, but who like when LBJ decided I'm. I'm sorry, man, but I gotta pursue yeah. this. This is the right thing. Their relationship kind of split apart, and it's one of the. It's probably the most significant relationship between the two characters in the film. But yeah, this is solid. Even though, no question, this is a. It's it's half a goddamn look at Brian Cranston go yeah. film, and half a. We think that maybe you need to understand what actually happened during this whole civil rights no. thing I mean, and how it, only, how it came to be. This can only ever be one part of the story. Obviously, yeah. the filmmakers have made certain decisions about what is important in this story, who's right, who's wrong, etc. I'm not going to tell you what to think. But as far as one thing that is obvious is that they see parallels between what is happening now. And if you go back and study that period of time, you're going to see that the decisions that people like LBJ, the Dixiecrats, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King, things that they were dealing with then have continued to have ripple effects into today's mm-hmm. modern era. It's all about equality, as yeah. is our next film, which is actually called Equals. Oh, I see what you do. We're kind of going into the lightning round now, because I actually have to move things along quickly. I've got another podcast coming up oh, in, yes, in here to take Sorry. over this equipment shortly. It's not your fault. I'm the one who goes on and on. <laughs> no, 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 no. I go on and on. <laughs> well, okay, you're right, but we both go on and on. Yes, yes. But uh, Equals, Equals a good it, film. Yeah, is... Um, I'm not sure the Georgia Orwell estate shouldn't sue them, though. Yeah. This borrows so heavily from 1984. Or Aldous Huxley. Or no, any... It's, it's, it's 1984 or through... Or THX It's 1984 they shoved it up the ass of Gattaca. Yeah, and Gattaca. <laughs> this is every post-apocalyptic sort of, you know... Dystopian future, yeah, but movie but not post, but not post-apocalyptic in feel. It's more no, like no, not in it's feel. like that. Here's several hundred years later, humanity barely remembers this world, yeah. and now it's a super sterile, completely controlled, literally emotionless well, a society. Tiny part of it, and yeah. literally emotions have been outlawed. Yeah, but the problem is for Nicholas Holt, who plays Silas, the, our protagonist, that there's a disease called switched-on syndrome, where people start actually, despite the drugs that are they're pumped in from an early age, they start having emotional experiences, which just like the Vulcans and Pon Far are extremely more intense because of the fact they haven't been experiencing them their whole life. And this is a, a case when this happens, they have like a whole treatment thing you go through, but eventually it ends with them killing you as yeah. they're like, well, you're too out of control. We got to kill you. But uh, he doesn't want that to happen. He finds himself really attracted to Kristen Stewart, who plays a character at first, seems like she has no she doesn't have a problem at all, and then turns out she's a hider, someone yes. who is in a deep stage of this disease, but has learned to effectively hide it. And as it goes on, he finds there are other people who have it and are dealing with it in various different ways, including Guy Pierce and Jackie Weaver. Mm-hmm. I mean, overall, this is an acceptable little dystopian sci-fi piece, but there's nothing super standout about no, it. No, it, it, is, it survives purely on the strength of the central performances and the production design. It is, as you mentioned, this is every dystopian uh, film you've ever imagined and ever seen with a little twist of Romeo and Juliet thrown in. I'll give it that. Very true. So suffice it to say, this is a good, solid little film. I think you'll enjoy it, but not terribly original. 
Uh, next up is one I, I you didn't get to see, and I kind of felt bad that I didn't have time to throw this to you, but I got it a little late. Is a bigger splash. Uh, this is directed by Luca Guadagino. Guadagnino. Yeah, I mean, you're so much better at that than I am. But but who did a film previously with Tilda Swinton? It was also very quiet and very intense, but that I loved called I Am Love. Like highly recommended for your art film types. Just totally solid. So I was kind of excited to see him team up with her again uh, for this film. That is, uh, she plays basically a female David Bowie character, um, like like David Bowie crossed with Marianne Faithful. You know, um, Tilda Swinton is a female date. That's very there. true. She plays Marianne Lane. She's a famous rock star. She's living in in uh, on a tiny little Italian island with her boyfriend, played by Matthias uh, Schonartz. And they've like she's a lot. He's a lot younger than her, but that's not really an issue. They have a very passionate, very powerful relationship. And she's has something that they never really say what it was, but. She has to speak in whispers the whole film because there's some. They did some surgery or something on her voice, oh. and to make sure that she gets her voice back, she she's not supposed to talk at all. So she spends very little of this film actually talking. Most of it is through her physically gest- gesticulating and making facial expressions, which is quite a challenge because she's in the film quite a bit. Um, but they're interrupted by an old friend played by Ralph. Uh, sorry, Rafe. Whatever finds. <laughs> Uh, Harry, who is a old record producer, a very well-known record producer, and who is a former lover of Tilda Swinton, who literally passed her off to uh, Matthias Schoenartz when he got sick of her. But now has reached a point in his life that he kind of realized he's made a mistake, mm-hmm. and maybe he wants to go back and be a douchebag and rekindle flame. it. Uh, he comes along with his young uh, just discovered daughter that he didn't know he had, Penelope, played by Dakota Johnson, uh, who is there, who's just, who's one of those teenagers who just wants to watch the world burn. Mm. You know, one of those people who's like, I'm going to throw kerosene on this fire and see what happens. She's one of those. And yeah, sure enough, things like their complete joy that they have out there is completely and utterly disrupted, both by him, a magnificent performance by Fines, who is playing this huge, bigger-than-life, just-eat-all-the-life-he-can-find type character who's just um, a, just lovely to watch. He lights up this film uh, to some really dark shit that happens in the beginning of the third act that informs the whole rest of it. Now, the problem with this is it feels like a film based on a book. Uh, I don't believe it actually is. Uh, it's based loosely on a film called La Pacine, which I've not seen. Um, but it feels like a book where not everything that was supposed to be in there is in there. Because the end, you're like, I feel like there's a subtext here I've completely missed. And I even went around looking at other reviews where we like said almost exactly the same yeah. thing. This is a gorgeously shot film that's incredibly well acted, that has a lot of neat plot elements that ultimately you were like, but what are you saying, man? Hmm. So, I don't know, mixed review on this one, but I think it is worth a look, especially for those great performances. Uh, and then, of course, we got to talk about Captain America Civil War. I know you guys have all seen Captain America Civil War already, and if you haven't, I, 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 you probably never will. You know? Yeah, no, you're, at this you're, point, if nothing sold you on it. It's nothing's going to change. This wasn't like the tent pole of this year. Unless you were like in a coma, in which case you totally have a good reason. Yeah, if if this was this was the tent pole superhero film for this year, and and it lived up to ninety percent, lived up to the hype that we all expected. I mean, I don't think personally it was as strong as Winter Soldier was. No, not at all. But it also was the biggest game changer of any of the Marvel films. I I mean, you know, it it was a 
what I had anticipated, yeah. and it was kind of what I had been fearing for a while, which is like, you've got all these balls juggling in the air, eventually you're going to have to get all of these characters in one movie, and yeah. big surprise, you're going to lose a lot of the tension and interest, because now you've got 574 characters you're supposed to give a shit about, and guess what? You cannot care about them all but, but I do, at the same time. I do think that this film is remarkable in that, they do manage to give everybody a lot of good, good and quality everybody screen time. Everybody gets a time. moment, but I think Chad Bozeman, uh, as Black Panther, is really the character I'm most interested in seeing in a standalone. And they definitely give him he a lot a to lot do here, um, uh, like because they really want to prep us and get excited for Black Panther, which, which I'm sure that Disney is is a little nervous about because historically, like very dom- black dominated casts about characters whose brands all but don't exist for the in the in the mass populace's mind have not performed all that well marvel's looking to change that as well they should as everybody should and black panther is the a film i think a lot is riding on i i expect black panther to knock it out of the park personally but um yeah a lot in here they also do a lot for spider-man who is the best on-screen portrayal of spider-man we've seen yet and the single best mass superhero fight scene ever filmed. I'll give them credit. Even if they manage to somehow bring in Ant-Man just for this one sequence, it's like, okay, I know you had to get him in here because you have to get everybody yeah, but in here, gra- but they really do pay off on Yeah, that. I mean, as great as Spider-Man is, and he's terrific, He just they just nailed the whole big mouth, nervous kid thing yeah. to actually really incredibly powerful. Uh, as great as he is, and you're like, man, could this fight get any better? The moment Ant-Man goes to Giant-Man, you're like, yeah. yep, the fight just oh, got you're better. You just ruined it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, finally Paul Rudd's character pays off. I mean, oh, that's why he's such an important member of the team. <laughs> he could do that. They never told us he could do that. Now, of course, this is a uh, Marvel Blu-ray, so it's filled with extra features, including a two-part feature that, that honestly is only about 40 minutes long. Um, but, but still, I mean, that's good. I, the previous ones have had even, even longer ones that were like feature length. So this is short by comparison. I don't even but know why like, they have to break it up into two But it's, parts. it's totally, yeah, and me neither. But it's a solid and entertaining in its own way. Look behind the scenes at how they did the special effects. Talking to people behind the scenes, gagging around. I mean, it's great. It's high quality and you're going to, if you love the movie, you're going to totally want to watch it. There's two little puff pieces that are basically like, in case you don't remember that what happened with Captain America and Iron Man before right. now. Here's the road to Civil War pieces with both those characters that show kind of what happened to bring them to the point where this movie starts. Uh, there's a sneak peek at Doctor Strange, uh, which actually is more than just a trailer. It's got concept art and interviews with the cast and crew. There's a collection of deleted and extended scenes, which mainly is notable for a much extended scene at uh, Peggy Carter's funeral um. uh, that involves stuff from Black Widow talking about her past that was cut, I think because they hadn't, when they filmed it, they hadn't decided they were giving her her own movie, and now they have, and they're like, let's save that for the movie. I, I you know, Peggy Carter's getting a movie? No, no, or Black, Black Widow. Widow. Black oh. Widow. Uh, there's a gag reel because that's I was really nowhere. I when the Peggy Carter series got Me too. Uh, taken off. I uh, really like that. 
There's I want a, that more than Black Widow. There's a about three minute gag reel, which is I un, no clue why it's as short as it is. Uh, you're like, there has to be more stuff than this. The way that this whole crew clearly love the fuck out of each other. I mean, especially Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr., who apparently are like the best friends in the world and do everything together now. And like they talk about that so much during all the extra features, and you watch them gagging with each other, and they're like, honestly, the hardest thing about this movie was for us to pretend like we're really in mad at each yeah. other because. You it's know, just not in they character. They sit on something for that 20th anniversary edition. Yeah. Which, God only knows what platform it'll be released on. We'll be downloading it directly into our cerebral cortex. I can't wait. And then there's an audio commentary from the directors. Uh, but anyway, solid stuff. Uh, this next thing I would say would be my pick of the week if it wasn't just a re-release with slightly less yeah. physical stuff added on, which is the Twin Peaks set, which is everything. I yeah. mean, literally, it's everything that you could possibly imagine that's connected to Twin Peaks, which is the entire original series, Firewalk With Me, and then a essentially a sort of like secondary Firewalk With Me movie called The Missing Pieces, which is there were so many deleted scenes from yeah. this thing that David Lynch personally edited them into kind of a movie, which is like... You're like, okay, this is all clearly just extra stuff, but there's a lot extra. And I mean, with like new scoring pieces and everything. And even towards the end, you realize, shit, there was a whole fucking ending this that takes place after the series that shows what happens after the where's Annie? Where's Annie sequence? This this just says 1,634 minutes. Yeah, it's... That's how much material, not counting the special features, you have to contend with. Oh, it's 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 so extensive. And like I said, rather than the sort of like fold-open case or the cardboard stuff, this is a more traditional plastic snap-in case. So that's really the main difference so they can sell it for cheaper stuff. But uh, wow. the bonus features are just ridiculous. There's all the original Log Lady intros. Uh, there's episode previews and recaps on select episodes. Uh, there's uh, two versions of the series pilot, but the American version, which was just the pilot of the show and the, the European version which was added an ending so it could be released as a standalone thing which for the longest time was the only version you could get of it hmm. like uh, on home release. Uh, there's an image gallery behind the scenes pro- photographs there's uh, sneak peek network promos uh, there is a 56 minute a slice of Lynch uncut <laughs> which sits him has him sitting down with Kyle McLaughlin Madgen Amchik and post-production supervisor John Wentworth to discuss everything about Twin Peaks and the whole thing is done in a sort of feel of like this could be a scene from Twin Peaks the way they talk to each other but that's David Lynch's whole life he's always that way um uh, there's deleted scenes for all of this. There's outtakes for all of this. And there's a lot there's, of over a, over an hour long. I mean, that's like one hour thing. I mean, yeah. there's like four or five things here that go for over an hour. There's a return to Twin Peaks, which wow. was a 2007 featurette, which looks at fans going to a Twin Peaks festival, uh, tour the locations that did the locales from it, uh, uh, interviews with all pretty much all the members of the cast. Uh, uh, one of the most fun things in here is there is a thing called between two worlds where it has David Lynch sitting down with Ray Wise, Grace Zabriskie and Cheryl Lee, where he's like, I'm sitting down here with the Palmers, two of which are dead. 
one of which is still alive, to see what's going on in their lives now. And they actually played themselves as if oh they were God. those characters saying what's happening now. That's actually super fun. That's like 10 minutes of a 38-minute piece that the rest of it is just a regular conversation between all of them. That's super fun. I mean, this is just this, this is deeper tiniest touch. And I haven't even... I mean, that's a, a small portion of all the bonus features that are on this thing. It's wow. incredibly huge. And like I said, if this was like... If it had just come out and this was, I was reviewing it then, I'd go, oh, this is unquestionably pick of the week. Because it's one of the greatest TV series home releases ever put together. But if you see this and still want more Twin Peaks, I mean, wow. Well, I will say there is, we are going to be having a giveaway for the set coming up. Not this week, but it will be coming up as separate from Digital Noise. Uh, and this is something you're going to want to be paying attention to yeah. when it posts because there will be specific things you have to do to win it. And I will, I will announce those shortly. Uh, finishing up here, Beauty and the Beast, for some reason getting re-released yet again on Blu-ray. How many times has that come out already? I mean, it's a great movie. It's, it is. It's a lot of people feel it's of the modern age Disney films. It was or the second it, it age of Disney. Disney back it's from the brink. It's probably the masterpiece of those films, but it's. I think it's the only one that's gotten a second Blu-ray release. I wow. think. I'm not sure about that, but yeah, I mean the bonus. It's all the bonuses from the previous ones, along with a few extras, which are modern day lookbacks. Like what what people involved with it thought about the movie, and then some karaoke type stuff for the kids, and yeah, it's Beauty and the Beast. It's phenomenal. If you didn't buy it on the first round, here's your second round chance to buy it. Everybody should have this fucking thing in their collection anyway. It's 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 really one of those films you do want to revisit. And if you have kids, oh for fuck's sakes, buy this thing. Yeah. Well, you're not going to show them Beauty and the Beast. That's child abuse. Yeah. Whereas if you don't want to pay for, like, child care, just put them in front of the Twin Peaks uh, desk. No, don't do that's that. That's thousands of don't, hours. Don't you could just that. leave them that's, unattended. That's not a good Nothing idea. Nothing wrong will happen. Not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, when, you're, when your three-year-old looks at you and goes, where's Annie? And where's they're talking Annie? backwards <laughs> in the red room. Then you know some <laughs> things have happened. <laughs> I am the arm, and I sound like this. <laughs> the last thing we're doing is Back in Time, which is a documentary about the Back to the Future series and its fans specifically. And this one is our giveaway. Uh, there's a lot going on here. It's actually pretty fun. Uh, like everybody involved with this film gets interviewed and it takes a look at all these different aspects of the fandom, including people who've made the cars, the various versions of the cars over the years, uh, the, uh, uh, People doing there's who do this special screening where they build the whole town around oh it, where God. you could go and like do all I've the things in that. the town. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's 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 a lot of stuff that's really good here, and I, I found as a fan, I really enjoyed this. So we're giving this away. If you want to win this, what do you have to do? Well, if you could go back in time and change anything in history, what would that be? Now I know what Chris would. Ch Actually, I don't know what Chris would change. All I know is that I am stalling for time, and I'm stalling for time effectively. You're not supposed you to even actually say you're stalling for time. Oh, my God. Time. Are we still recording? Yes. Oh, my goodness. I had to open oh, the door. So what did I say about the giveaway? Oh, yes. If you could go back in time and change any event in cinematic history, 
what would that be? And you're going to want to tweet that at one of us, Nat, with the hashtag Back in Time giveaway, and we will send you this copy of Back in Time on DVD, which, like I said, Back to the Future fan, kind of essential viewing. Thank you so much for joining me, Marco. Thank you for having me. Uh, and I'll be back in another week and a half or so with Joe with a whole new slew of titles to review. But until then, thank you to all of you guys for listening and being fans and being subscribers or thinking about being subscribers and then actually doing it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> or, uh, you know it's the thought that counts. No, it's the money not. Counts more. No, no, the, the clicks count. The actual the pressing counts. on the button and entering your credit card number counts. But uh, thanks, <laughs> and we'll be back soon. Thank you, folks. Goodbye. <laughs>